Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to The Rest is History, the podcast which hurtles from ancient Rome to the 1990s at warp speed, cheerfully calling in at Troy and China along the way. This is also a podcast happy on occasion to lift its skirts and show a little flesh, which is handy as joining Dominic and I today is the historian and author Hallie Rubinhold, who has specialised in the 18th and 19th centuries in Britain and particularly in the sexual dynamics of the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, Dominic, I should reveal at this stage that I actually met Hallie first, not through her history, but through her fiction. Because yeah. Hallie, the, the first book of yours that I um, read was uh, a novel, um, Henrietta Lightfoot. It, it was called <laughs> Fantastic. Yes, it, Mistress of My Fate. Mistress of My Fate. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yes, and and she was she was an eighteenth century uh, kind of following the the Hogarth, the uh, the Harlot's Progress, um, and very very kind of unreliable narrator. That's right. Just tell us something a little bit about her. Well, it's uh, I. So I wrote the book. I wanted to use really every 18th and early 19th century dramatic trope there was, and um, and so I I wanted to create a book which was like Tom Jones, which was like um, Barry Lyndon, which was like um, Fanny Hill, which was like Jane Austen, um, but told completely from a woman's point of view. Um, and and told in a way which was um, unashamed uh, and and you know just very upfront about what women would have experienced having fallen from uh, I, I'm not going to say a great height because she was the illegitimate daughter of, of an earl but um, having fallen from respectable society and then having to make her way as a courtesan and and what that was like and and the reason why I wrote this was that I have spent a lot of time reading what were called, well, what are known as Hawes memoirs. Um, and it's a whole, it's a whole genre. And it's just absolutely brilliant. 17th, 18th, 19th century confessionals um, where... Written by, written by actual Hawes. Sometimes by, by women who engaged in sex work. So um, Harriet Wilson... Uh, 
Uh, and if you remember Harriet Wilson and, and her relationship with the Duke of Wellington. And, uh, oh, Publish and Be Damned. Publish and Be Damned, that's right. And, and so she actually did write her memoirs. But she's one of the few, and there are lots of other women along the way who um, men basically voiced their experiences for them. And this became a type of pornography which men could buy, and it was very titillating. So it's like Fanny Hill, right? Yeah, well, like, Fanny exactly, Hill. exactly. Fanny Hill, you know, it's a perfect example. You know, what what women would have experienced. And, um, and what I, I just couldn't believe was that, you know, I knew that a woman's experience in this world of sex would have been so completely different than the way the men experienced it. And I was, I was just desperate to find that voice. I mean, there's Harriet Wilson. And, and when women write it, like Harriet Wilson does, she's writing it predominantly for a male audience, to a male readership, to titillate. Um, but you know the reality of this is that it's going to be so bloody awful for women in many cases, and in some cases to be very empowering for women. And, um, and you know, and, and, and every, every degree and every shade in between those two things as well. And no one ever talked about that. So I thought I wanted to write basically an 18th century novel, which used, again, all of those devices and everything, but did it in such a way in that we get that other side where she's talking about, well, this is what happened to me and this is how I survived. And, you know, and actually hate these men. And, and, you know, and I just lie there on the bed and he can do whatever he wants to me and then I'm done. And then, you know, and it's that sort of stuff. It's so, it's really unromanticized sex in many ways because Hallie this 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 brings up one of the, th- the kind of long-running themes of this podcast which is that um because I write about ancient history where basically you know we know almost nothing and Dominic writes about recent history where there's so much Dominic presumably you know, you know you've got all these kind of sex surveys and yeah tons and and all kinds century, of things. Yeah. So, you know, so if you're writing a history of sex in post-war Britain which lots of people you, have you done you have no lack of material of whereas yeah, yeah if enormous. we're trying to trace yeah. if we're trying to trace the course you know the way that sexual attitudes change over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries Halley's a kind of indeterminate because there's kind of material there but yeah. but, but not nearly as so much so where do you find it where do you oh. find it Halley? where do you go to oh god I mean it just it's really um, well lots of diaries and lots of memoirs and, and letters and things like you know really personal stuff which it's just so thrilling when you find. And I know it sounds like, oh, you know, oh, titillating, thrilling. I mean, thrilling as in you get, I mean, this is, to me, this is what drew me to studying sex historically, is that there is nothing else which cuts into the psyche and the deeply, deeply personal experiences of people in the past, of Mm -hmm. what it was like to inhabit their heads, of what it was like to inhabit their bodies. Because, I mean... There is nothing so personal as sex, you know, and what happens between two people in a bedroom or more than two people in a bedroom or wherever, you know, is so, you know, it tells you about the personality. It tells you about, you know, what their beliefs are, you know, are they religious? Are they, what are they afraid of? All of these things just kind of come tumbling out. And so it's, I I just think it's a really, really direct way into studying the person. Um, and here's a question for but, you. How can you try... I mean, people are famously um, dishonest about yeah. their own sex lives. So how do you know when people are being... In their letters or their diaries, how do you... Uh, do you just do... 
do you assume that in their diaries, for example, people are being honest, or might they be lying to themselves or to some putative reason? Well, sometimes, sometimes they are lying, and that's part of it. I mean, sex is performance, you know, for, for a lot of people. Um, and But, you know, again, it's all about context. And what, you know, reading Casanova's memoirs, you know, is, you know, is a completely different experience than reading the letters of Lady Caroline Lennox, you know, who, uh, with, with her sister, you know, who's talking about, you know, married sex and, and, uh, and, you know, what it's like and joking that they're not virgins anymore and they can talk about these types of things. Um, and, you know, so that, and you have to weigh it up. And again, you know, there, there are all sorts of other things in between. I mean, uh, William Hickey's uh, memoirs, I just think, are absolutely fantastic. And Boswell. I mean, I actually, I mean... Boswell. I, I yeah, know, Boswell. Tom, yes. you were going to... Yeah. A Batman. Yeah. Uh, a Batman, yeah. surely. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so one of the things that I've been doing over the lockdown is um, following the lines of buried rivers across yes. London. Yes. So it's something you can do, you can walk. So you go out and you follow the line of a, a, a buried river. And what I find again and again is that um, basically red light districts are along the banks of these kind of lost rivers. So I, I've followed the line of the Bloomsbury Ditch, mm. which goes obviously from Bloomsbury over across what's now the Strand and down to, uh, down, down to the Thames. And this was a favourite haunt of Boswell's. He was, he was always there with his... Well, um, the Strand, kind of, the Strand... Or... Well, because the, it, it, you go across the Strand and there was this kind of great snarl of streets, mm. wasn't there? I think it's Holywell Street, yeah. which was notorious as the pornographer's street where you go and buy condoms. And so presumably that's where Boswell went and bought his, what was it? It was kind of sheep gut or whatever. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, <laughs> you, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Um, and, and then it all got swept away in the, um, I think, in the 1890s and, and made into this kind of, you know, the old, which is one of the most antiseptic oh, places you, in the whole you, of London. But you say this, but, you know, I mean, the thing is, you know, you mentioned the Strand. The Strand is such an interesting thing. And actually the geography of, of, of prostitution in London is, is fascinating to follow because the Strand has always been a haunt of streetwalkers. I mean, really since I mean, the 18th century, the 19th century, even into, you know, the early 20th century as well. So, and, and, but, you know, the, the type of streetwalker changes, um, you know, so you have, you have, oh, kind of almost in the 18th century, almost a lower middle class type of streetwalker. And then, you know, and then becomes, uh, you know, well, I mean, I was going to say there were varying degrees of... of, of uh, so the Covent Garden ones are the posh ones? The, well, well, at various times. Again, you know, okay, so actually I need to re... Well, in Boswell's time. In, in, Bo in Boswell's, Boswell's time. time. Boswell... Well, okay, let me explain. So what was going on, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's a kind of movable feast. And the interesting thing about sex work is that you can trace, you know, the development of London... Um, and and the movement of sex work, and it tells you something about, well, first of all, how integrated sex work was into the fabric of society. And, you know, Dan Cruikshank has, has written about how London was built on the back of sex work. And, you know, that is, I think, largely true. So much money was invested in it. But also you can, tr you can trace the growth of London through where elements of, of the sex industry relocated to. So, for example... At the time that Boswell was out and about, um, yes, most of it was centred in Covent Garden. So this is you know, kind of 18, sorry, 1760s, 50s, 60s. Um, by the time you're getting mid, later part of the 18th century, 
the, the really the better class of sex worker and the courtesans have all moved and the movement was starting really by the by 1760s um into uh Piccadilly, St James especially you had the 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 nunneries the high class brothels on uh King Street um at King's Place um and uh you know and you had for example you know you go into somewhere like St James's Square whatever um, Barclay Square, and you will have, you know, the Duke of So-and-so and, and the Earl of So-and-so's townhouse, and then, you know, across the road will be somebody's mistress living in a townhouse. So it's, you know, it's all completely integrated. But what actually I think is more interesting is the the more prosaic aspect of this. It's, it's neither the really high class nor the really low class. It's the, like, what's happening in Fitzrovia, for example. Because, you know, as Fitzrovia becomes really middle class, you also get, like, the, you know, the the sex workers for cabinet makers and grocers and china sellers and, you know, these these middle class women who work as sex workers living in you know I, I i walk around places like charlotte street and all the all of the um the streets around there and i i still look up at these buildings and i think oh that's where miss so-and-so <laughs> um um because it, it was so it was so woven into the fabric of of london and the geography of london it was so normalized and it was so much a part of everyday 18th century life hallie can i ask you a question can i jump in and ask you a sure. question um so you're talking about it being normalised. Is this a profession that people would choose voluntarily, or was it one in which that which they were to which they were driven by circumstance or by penury or by a pimp or whatever it might be? Both, absolutely both, and from uh, a variety of classes. Certainly in the 18th century. I mean, this again, you know, when you start to examine this, you realise how, first of all, what society says. And what they actually do are two totally different things. And that, to me, is utterly fascinating because, you know, you get the lip service. You get, you know, if you, if you read, um, you know, a, a lot of the, um, the uh, moralising tracks, the educational tracks and things and books that were written at the time, you know, talk about, you know, oh, a woman falls off the path of virtue and she's ruined. And, and actually, if you examine, that's not true at all. That actually okay. um, wasn't the case. So... You have things like you have lower middle class girls who, um, and I'm going to use a, a friend of William Hickey's, Thomas Vaughan, who had something like seven daughters and he was a solicitor. And um, uh, there's this whole bit in Thomas Hickey's uh, memoirs, which he's, talk he's talking about um, Thomas Hickey, William Hickey, um, William Hickey's memoirs, where he's talking about um, uh, Thomas Vaughan's daughters you know, he's, he's, he's bemoaning the fact that he has so many daughters that some of them are going to have to turn out whores. Now, by wow. that, he means he doesn't have money for dowries. And this is one of the problems is if, you know, if you are, if you see yourself as upwardly mobile or if you, if you desire to move up in a social class, you have to have the money to push your daughters into that social class. And if you don't, you've got a real problem because you've got superfluous females on your hands. And that superfluous female problem is isn't going to be one that's really going to be addressed until about the 1870s, 1880s in this country. So what do you do with these girls? They can't marry a man of their class, so they're going to have to basically become like a concubine. And mm -hmm. and so that's what happens in some cases. 
Um, you know, and then you have poor women who end up falling into it. And then you have women, uh, girls who were born in brothels. You know, you, you talk about, you know, the, you know, family values Well, family values are also criminal values. And, and a lot of families made a lot of money through the sex trade. And, um, you know, girls were raised in brothels to become um, sex workers. So, you know, there was no entry point, specific entry point. Um, there were a lot of entry points. So that raises a question that we got on Twitter, Tom, um, from JPA, which I think if we can ask JPA's question now. JPA said, what happened about pregnancy? So was it a career ender? Um, it wasn't. JPA says, not hardly helpful short term for marketing and resulting in periods <laughs> of forced leave. Yeah. Was it difficult to prevent? So, so what happens with that? Because yeah. obviously that is an occupational hazard. Oh, it totally is. And this, again, you know, coming back to the novel that I wrote, um, this is, you know, I address this in the novel quite a lot. You know, if your career, uh, well, at a time when there was no effective birth control, if your career is based on a lot of sex, having a lot of sex frequently, and you're a fertile woman, you're going to get pregnant pretty re- regularly. So what what do you do? Now, this is where the really, you know, the, the bits that people don't talk about, and, and even people suppress this uh, and felt uncomfortable talking about it in their own era, which is abortion. And abortion, I'm not talking about, um, you know, what we think of as backstreet abortions, um, where you, you're like four, five months along. Um, but this is, this is, you know, a woman is kind of missed her period. Um, and before you feel the quickening, and the quickening is, I think, about three months where you start to feel the child inside you, it was believed that wasn't a child. Um, and um, there were all sorts of... Um, uh, home remedies you could take that would, as as they as they said, clear the womb. In fact, these were so readily available that they were advertised in the front page of most newspapers. Hooper's wow. female pills, um, hmm. and um, I think some of these Hooper's female pills were analysed um, uh, not that long ago, and they found to have very high levels of metals in them. And and that was metals, you know, it, it's it's what you're doing is taking a low level poison, which then makes you really sick and your body expels everything. Um, and and yeah, for, for servant girls who are the other kind of the classic way that you become a prostitute is you work as a servant girl and then the master gets you pregnant and yes. then you're thrown out on the streets. Classic, um, presumably, is, is, is this also, are, are they resorting to abortions yeah, absolutely. and pills I mean, this and, is, in the same way it was you know it was so prevalent this is another there's an interesting anecdote about when regent's park was opened and you know they have a herb garden regent's park and they found that it's like i think within a day of opening regent's park with with the herb garden all of the abortifacent herbs were gone so all all the penny royal was stripped away um uh that's that's how prevalent it was okay okay hallie that that, i mean that is an amazing note i think on which to go for a break (laughs) um when we come back i've got a question for you from michael ronson 
who, who says, what precipitated the shift from the randy restorationers to the sexually neurotic Victorian? Sounds like horrible mm. histories. Assuming there's any truth in that characterisation. I ask that because I, I want to put that in a slightly different way, prompted by my own recent reading. Okay. So perhaps we could just leave that hanging. We'll come back to it after the break. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. Um, we are talking to Hallie about sex in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and Hallie, I, we have this sense that, um, well, I mean, basically, the understanding of sex 
and the understanding of the relationship between men and women, it seems to me, changes very, very radically over the course of this period. And it's kind of... So, I, as Dominic well knows, he may not have picked up on this, but I wrote this history of Christianity. Oh, my God. That, I, is, <laughs> Tom, that is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. I know. But I just say, so, 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 I, so I read a lot about... I read a lot of Puritan. Yeah. Uh, and in the 17th century, you have a definite sense that, um, that men think that, that women are... It, are vastly more licentious than men that, that that they're predatory you know give them a chance they'll try and sleep with you um and recently i've been reading dickens so i've been reading a lot of dickens novels and in dickens essentially it's tarts with hearts uh, tarts prostitutes are fallen angels um women are, are are morally superior they're essentially kind of asexual uh it's always the men who are the predators men who are who who, who are the more sexually active that's, I mean, a massive cultural change mm. in terms of how people understand both sex and prostitution and the, the kind of the relative natures of men and women. So what is what's happened over the course of, I mean, really, that, that, that those two centuries? Well, I that's suppose. I mean, that that's that's like a whole book in itself. And I think and also I think there are lots of ways in which we can we can question this again. I think in some senses, you know, I want to try to maybe subvert this question slightly before I really answer it, which is. Um, what you're recording, what you're talking about is the sexual behavior and uh, practices and viewpoint ideologies of a literate class of people from the 17th to the 19th centuries. Um, They were not the majority. So how the majority of people lived their lives and the type of behaviors and practices they engaged in were probably in well were entirely removed from what the literate classes were writing about so we have actually two histories here and 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 you know so one thing that we know about is that in fact the sexual behavior of the working classes didn't really change that much you know so there was sex outside of marriage um often when a woman was pregnant then the marriage would be uh that then you know there would be a a certain pressure to get married um a lot of times um uh people abandon each other um you know after a marriage sometimes people didn't get married nobody actually even checked necessarily to see if a couple had been married just saying you were married was enough um and so you know sometimes you had a a whole um a situation where uh, a woman for example um had her par- her partner left her and um, they may or may have not have been married she may have had a child with him then she recouples with another man um and then they split up and they find you know and so you have a whole succession of partners well that's totally different from for example from you know what uh you know this this you know what dickens will be talking about and how victorian women will have behaved you know so that's the ideal and that what i'm discussing is is the reality for the majority now um addressing uh more to the point what what you were saying about this whole kind of the larger overlying uh issues the overlying ideas behind how sex changed i mean there are lots of things that happened there it's the, the introduction of um 
you know, love in the 18th century, this idea of compatibility, the uh, compa- the idea of, of nature. Um, so that's Rousseau. Yeah, and Rousseau. Kind of um, and, you know, that, that couples, that sex should be companionate, that... Um, you know, the, there's lust and then there's love and, and you know, there's a perfect pairing of these two things. Um, but it's continued, you know, it, they continue to believe really through the, certainly the early part of the 19th century that women have this sort of unbridled lust and it's women who are lusty and in fact um all you have to do is have sex with a woman she loses her virginity and then she becomes insatiable and and then the man's duty is to kind of control that lust by marrying her but that's ch- that's changed by the victorian period hasn't that it? starts well actually well that yes i mean that has changed because a little bit because little emily in david copperfield you know famously falls but she still remains pure despite the fact that yeah and know. i mean but now but now we're. i mean is that just a weird dickens yeah thing? It, well no but now we're bringing in <laughs> some very complicated you know dickens personal complicated notions yeah. of of the fallen woman you know dickens had um his own um refuge for fallen women at urania house in hammersmith do you know about this do you know about yeah yeah and and yeah. And, and his own mistress and, it, and, oh, and his own mistress you know so you know <laughs> yeah. do as i say and not as i do um yeah. and you know and that, but the kind of the idea of the angel in the house yeah. i guess that 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 for Victorian men, and I'm very aware that I'm providing the male gaze here, but that that for middle class Victorian men, women are seen as somehow almost kind of asexual. That but that's that's very the upper middle and middle classes, and then the working classes. Who's who's the um, who's the Victorian guy who has an, an ongoing affair with his scullery maid and ends up marrying her and takes loads of photos? Oh, Arthur uh, uh, yes, Arthur Mumby. That's Arthur, right. And he, yes, so, his obsession with muscular women and uh, yeah. and servants and uh, working. Hannah Cullen. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. But 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 because I'm one in the context of of all the work you've done on um, Jack the Ripper and the East End, is, is there a sense in which um, you know the gentleman in the opera cloak going to the East End? Is it the fact that the women there are poor? Is that part of? What makes it exciting well, for the men? Well, I mean, I suppose it's impossible to know. But. Well, it's, you know, I mean, I think you're talking, what, what you're talking about kind of crosses over into this phenomenon of slumming, which was, um, yeah. which was uh, when people from the West End or wealthy people would go to the East End, almost as tourists, really, and try to engage in the life and participate in the life and go to the pubs and have sex and do all these things and then get back in their carriages and, and go home to Belgravia. Um, and, um, I think this is, you know, I mean, there's, as with all of this stuff, it's really, really complicated. I mean, it's sex in Britain, especially is totally bound up with class and you can't really, um, detach the two so that, you know, the attitude towards women and, you know, this obviously goes all the way back is that working class women are the bottom of the pile and also working class women really 
don't have to worry that much. I mean, it, about, you know, keeping themselves pure from marriage and their disposable commodities, they're, they're not valued as much, and it's believed that they're sexualized. So, you know, often a young man's first experience, like I'm thinking Walter, you know, My Secret Life, if you're familiar with these, these incredible, I mean, I mean, they are what is it i think it's 11 or 12 volumes written um in uh around 1888 but all, all the way through i think 1889 90 um and uh where it's it's just this kind of almost stream of consciousness this man remembering what i mean he's obviously he's obviously um uh a sex addict um, and a lot of this is embellished by his his imagination as well. But you know, he he just it's just volume after volume of kind of sex with women, and a lot of them, most of them, are of a lower social order. And the whole attitude towards lower class women is they're there to be used and disposed of, and that's that's libertinism. You know, I mean that that's you know what's being written. But about that does go back to the restoration, yes, right. doesn't it? I mean, that's, that's right. That's the rake, yeah. and then the the Byronic hero and. Yeah, and Hallie, can I ask? Yeah, can I ask? Can I jump in and ask a, a question? You're talking about Walter, and you've talked about um, we talked about people who lived 100 or 150 years earlier, and we're slightly sort of there's always a danger of lumping them in together. And what I'm curious about is whether all of these people had the same tastes, or whether practices change over time. So, in other words, what people are recording in their diaries in the 1750s or the 1850s have people always done the same things? Oh, yeah. Or did, yeah, people, I mean, people, people always, you know, people like sex. It's, you know, it's, it's a human impulse. It's a human instinct. But there aren't things that, there aren't, things, there aren't, as it were, fashions. Change. Yeah, things that change. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are, there are fashions. I mean, first of all, I want to say that, you know, we've been talking about straight sex as well. And there was a whole subculture of, of gay sex. And, um, and of course, the way, uh, uh, lesbians were viewed was entirely different um, because it was believed that you know uh, for women this was something the way in which you you can become sexualized is you have sex with a woman okay. first and then you learn to have sex with men so it was like, like a progressive so, so honey can I just yeah interrupt with a question from Chris Thales who says what was the biggest moral panic around sex during this period and what would peoples of the 18th and 19th centuries make of our attitudes towards sex in the 21st century and I'm guessing I mean, would you say the the biggest moral panic around sex is homosexuality I would, in, in, in Britain? I would say that... Around kind of 1800. Definitely. I would definitely say that's one. But then the other thing is, you know, when um, a moral panic around sex, I mean, it's also bound up in, you know, in other things like, like marriage. And there was a great moral panic around criminal conversation um, in the late 18th and early 19th century where criminal conversation is adultery and um, all of these adultery suits being brought and this was happening at the same time as the French Revolution and it was believed it would undermine um, Britain's confidence in their in their ruling class because you had all of these stories coming out about lady so-and-so in the hedgerows with somebody and <laughs> and um you know and all these people were gallivanting around and doing you know what the french aristocrats were doing and 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 losing their heads as a consequence um and so that was that was also a moral panic around sex um and you know and also the thing is about criminal conversation i mean people were queuing up around the block to a go into the trials and listen to them um, at the king's bench, 
and then B, to go and buy the transcripts so they can actually read about Lady So-and-so with her skirts above her head and the hedgerows. Um, so that, you know... But I guess that's... Yeah. I, I, I guess, I, I guess kind of, you know, in, you know, sex tapes and things, I mean, that is something that that perhaps we, we, we would... But I do, I mean, I do wonder the, the thing about homosexuality that, um, you know, it's been in the news recently with Naomi Wolf's new book mm. and Matthew Sweet's response to it. And, but but, but it, it, it is the case that men in the early years of the early decades of the 19th century were being executed for, the, for, for sodomy. Mm. And I guess that, that, you know, if you took someone from 1800 and said, well, you know, you look at Britain in 18, in, in 2021. I mean, that would seem an unimaginable change. And I'm kind of interested in that because I uh, did a lot, when I was young, did quite a lot about Byron. Mm. And there's a kind of enduring thesis that, that the reason that Byron goes abroad is because he basically is, you know, he wants to sleep with, with boys. And it, the risk of doing that in England is that he will, yeah. he will face a capital charge. And as a peer, that's that's a kind of, that's an absolute no go whereas abroad and 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 the english are kind of notorious for being incredibly bigoted about this yeah um so i you know even by the standards of of uh well i mean particularly by the turks i mean this seems to have been byron's you know the great appeal for byron is that the turks had much more tolerant attitude and it's kind of interesting how ra- how completely the, the pole has swung mm. that for us the kind of the islamic world is it's all about repression and uh and uh, homophobia and so on and <laughs> we're much freer and yeah it, yes. it is it is but it's also you know there's also the, the great tradition again this you know ties into libertinism as you know the great tradition of going abroad to sow your wild oats and you know that's as much with boys as it is with girls and you know the grand tourists who would go around italy and you know they like going to venice because apparently the venetian women were much uh, more liberal with their favors and then you end up leaving a whole load of illegitimates that you don't have to worry about because nobody can find you after you've left and come back to england and you know that's great and you go on your merry way <laughs> <laughs> there's that amazing conversation that boswell has with rousseau where <laughs> Boswell, you know, is is basically wants Rousseau to to tell him that everything he wants to do is great, and and Boswell is saying, you know, wouldn't it be all right if I have kind of thirty thirty wives, and I, you know, they all have children, and I just kind of dump them somewhere? Wouldn't that be all right? <laughs> and Rousseau, to give him credit, is saying, no, that's terrible, I can't do that. And Boswell is kind of palpably disappointed that Rousseau isn't saying, yeah, go ahead and do well, it. Well, you say, you know, that's really interesting because. You know, this comes back to the question that was asked, what would they think of us today? And um, I, I think, you know, I think they would be horrified. I think most they would be horrified at women, you know, at the way. I mean, all all women, we would all be whores that, that you know, to an 18th century man, all of the women would just be whores. But then at the same time, they'd be absolutely thrilled about that because it would mean that they wouldn't have any responsibility. Um, and I, I think they would be pretty horrified at our, our sexual freedom. Let's do some questions, Hallie. We've got tons of questions from, the, um, from our listeners. Um, so we can probably get through most of them, I reckon, before the end of the programme. So Stephen Clark, let's start with Stephen Clark. Stephen Clark says... To what extent was there ever really a Victorian taboo about sex? And if so, among which groups? And when did it develop and why? So he's basically he's asking about six questions in one. Yes. But do you want to... Um, do you have some thoughts on, on some or any of these? A Victorian taboo around sex. 
You know, I, I think that it's really complex, and I don't. I'm not sure I can give a very pithy answer to this. I think you know what started happening, certainly even towards the later Georgian period, is that attitudes towards sex started changing a bit. But having said that, then that oversimplifies how the Georgians viewed sex. So, um, you know, usually people will say. It accords with the growth of the middle class, the literate middle class and the aspirational middle class. And the, the bigger the middle class became, um, the more they reached for respectability. And, um, and that, was, that was part of, that was the motivating force around that, I think. Um, uh, and, uh, but that isn't to say that there, there ever was a time when, you know, again, I think... We try to say that, oh, the Victorians were so repressed. Actually, they weren't. They weren't okay. repressed. Yeah. Um, uh, any more than, you know, the, the Georgians were licentious. I mean, you know, the, it depends what class you were. It depends what your experiences were. So are these just sort of narratives that we've imposed yeah, on these periods they, they, they and are. they wouldn't have recognized these these versions of themselves themselves is that well, what you're it depends it depends who you were talking to you know it, it... ruskin john ruskin john, oh well <laughs> that's a different story altogether um uh yes john john ruskin i think not too many greek statues yes not not perhaps the best person to ask about that but effie maybe another story um <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, or well, Dickens. I mean, Dickens. You know, he overlaps with Ruskin, and his obviously his experience is completely different than his. Yeah, it's or and, Walter. Oh, Walter! I was going to say <laughs> yeah. Walter. You know, I mean, there, well, there you I, go. I tell you, a, a, an amazing thing. There's a question from James Hancock: How influential mainstream was the Marquis de Sade in his mm. time? There's an amazing detail that that um, Tennyson, who, in many ways, seems the embodiment of kind of. Um, you know, high Victorian attitudes to sex. When he met with Henry James, they talked about the Marquis de Sade. And you can't really imagine... I mean, well, Henry James... So Henry James... So there's a lot going on under the surface with Henry yes, James. Yes, I agree. Going under, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, never underestimate. So, uh, never underestimate. You know, <laughs> just... I, I think, you know, you know, of course men talked about sex. Of course Victorian men talked about sex. Whether they recorded it, you know, particular men recorded it, is another question. But Hallie, isn't is is this an unfair? Is this again? Am I providing the male gaze here? My sense is that men were kind of expected to know about sex, and women were not. Yes, yes, I. And, and I'm talking about middle classes here. Yeah, um, I. You know, the the novel writing, novel reading class. Well, yes, I mean, is, is that yes, yeah, for the most part, yes, and in fact, we still we still see that. I mean, all the way into the Edwardian era as well, um, when women become uh, much freer. Um, and you know, and there are lots of lie back and think of yeah, England. Yeah, well, you lie back and think of you know, and again, this is this is where the Georgians di differ. So you know, there was a really fine line where an unmarried or a girl of marriageable age in the Georgian era, um, she had to know a certain amount, but she couldn't know that much. She had to let the man who was courting her get close enough to her but not too close and and if something went wrong it you know she was ruined um you know and so there's always there's always that that fine line um i think it's it's the same you know victorian women weren't supposed to know that much really because you know really 
if you had sex outside of marriage, I mean, it was unequivocal. You were ruined. You were a fallen woman. Um, and, um, you know, unless in very bohemian circles or whatever. Having said that, you know, again, there's always, there's a rule and then there are all of these contradictions with everything. And, you know, and I think, you know, it's, it's, again, it always goes back to there's what people said and then what people did and how they adapted to that. Um, so, uh, you know, this idea that if you have sex outside of marriage, you know, you, you're ruined, you're, 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 you're spoiled goods. Lots of men married the mistresses. You know, well, so, well so, here's a good question. Yeah. So, so the late Labour Prime Minister Harold Wilson is on Twitter and he says, what caused the shift <laughs> away from public figures having widely acknowledged mistresses? Mm. So at what point did mistresses, as it were, go in, back in the closet, if that's not the wrong expression? But you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's a really good question. I mean, obviously, through the Georgian period, it was, it was acceptable. Um... I think, you know, even in the Victorian period, it, it was acceptable for men to be seen out and about with women like Skittles Walters and, you know, some of the, the big name uh, Cora Pearl and the big name uh, courtesans. Um, but obviously when a man got married, um, you know, he had to have at least a veneer of respectability, which didn't mean that he wasn't, he didn't still have a mistress somewhere in, in a house. Um I, I, you know, I think it's just, it's kind of t the tyranny of, of, of middle class, um, uh, sort of respectability. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Hallie, Hallie does, I mean, this is a serious question, although it may not sound it. Does the career of Boris Johnson shed light for you on the mores of the Georgians? It's a good question. Because, because actually the, th the thing that's interesting about him is, is that it's the kind of shamelessness. Yeah, it is. He, he yeah. doesn't seem to worry particularly about it. And so people just kind of take it for granted. Whereas if Theresa May... I know, I know. I think about this all the time. I think about it and, and you know, and you can say the same about Donald Trump uh, as well. Yes, yeah, so Trump, Trump as well, yeah. 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 Um, I, it's. I just think it's. You know. It's. If anything, it sheds light on uh, just how much of the double standard is is still with us, um, which I find quite quite worrying, quite sad in many ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, Boris Johnson is is behaving. Actually, I think it's it's a it's a really good. He's a really good sort of litmus test of where we are with our acceptance of sexuality um and different arrangements in the 21st century because i think at any other time somebody living with their partner and having children in number 10 would just be just like it wouldn't have happened i don't even think yeah, you know yeah unimaginable it, it wouldn't have even it wouldn't have even happened in the georgian era either i mean you would have kept your mistress somewhere else Hallie, you said something really? fascinating um, a, a few minutes ago. You talked about big name courtesans. Yes. Uh, so I wanted to ask about that. So that's like sort of Emil Zola's Nana or something. Yeah. You know, these sort of... So it's, it, are these people genuine celebrities? And do they acquire a kind of respectability because they're of their big name? And how do you become a big name? Are you particularly good at the job? I mean, what is, what is it that makes you a big name courtesan? I think it's a case of creating a certain sort of allure. Um, it's like your marketing is very good in many ways. And it's, 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 right. who, it's who, 
who you manage to um, hook up with um, and uh, all of the buzz around that, um, you know, if you are outrageous, like Kitty Fisher, for example, you know, this whole thing about eating a, a, um, um, a banknote between two pieces of buttered bread and um, drinking champagne from a, somebody drinking champagne from her slipper and all that makes her very desirable because she's fashionable and people want to be with her and they want to be seen with her. And it's, and, and, and um, courtesans can be status symbols as well. And, um, you know, you give, it's, it was the joke, something about giving your wife pearls and your mistress diamonds or the wife gets pearls and she turns to the husband and she says, well, what did you give your mistress? Um, <laughs> and it's, it's because it's a way of displaying your wealth as a man. Look, I'm so powerful that I can afford to keep this most desirable woman. Um, and I think actually, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're going to be in the sex trade, in the 18th and 19th centuries, really, that is the only way to, to live your life is like that. Because you do, as a woman, have a lot of agency. You you can choose who your keepers are. And um, and a lot of women, you know, played their cards very well and very wisely. And a lot of them didn't and went off the rails and ended up dying in complete penury as a result. Well, Hallie, rather than thinking about women dying in complete penury, I would like to end this by thinking about them drinking champagne out of <laughs> a, a much more much more positive note on which to end. I can't thank you enough for this incredible tour over such a kind of complex, fascinating range of material. Can't thank you enough. Thank you um, everyone for listening. We'll be back next week. Do keep an eye out on Twitter for our subjects, uh, what we're going to be discussing. Um, send us your questions, your comments, even your corrections. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.